0: Okay, while everybody's coming in and getting settled, let me remind you of a couple of announcements. First of all, we're still reminding everybody to sign up for emails. Make sure that if you don't get emails from the church, we don't send that many out. Certainly not like uh, political people do during the political season. I got two calls on the way here tonight that I just, you know, ignored, but I had to cut my phone off because just crazy number of calls we're getting for money or whatever. So anyhow, if you want to sign up, go to the church website westhoustonbiblechurch.org and go to the about us drop-down menu and there's a place there that you can select where you can sign up for the for the email list. And it's good for you to do that because for yourself because there's options as to uh, what category of emails you wish to receive and then Um, you will get the communications uh, from the church. Also a reminder to pray for Jeff Phipps and his uh, trip to Brazil working with the pastors and churches down there uh, November 23rd to December 3rd. We need to also continue to pray for our nation because of the election coming up and this is You hear it to a point where it almost sounds like a cliché, but this is, I think every election for the next five or six is going to be one of the most significant for this country. And so we need to be involved very, very much so and to be informed so that people get out and uh, Christians especially get out and vote according to um, standards of God's word. And so... Uh, We need to be in prayer for that. And no matter what happens, Scripture says, we're not to trust in the arm of the flesh, to trust in man, but we are to trust in God. And so we have to remember that however things work out, that it's not going to be crushing. God is still in heaven and God is still in control. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose for this is for spiritual preparation as we get ready to worship the Lord through the teaching of His Word, learning it and applying it. And everything in the Christian life is predicated upon our walk by the Spirit. And it is God the Holy Spirit who takes what we learn and makes it usable in our lives so that we can grow and mature in our spiritual life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful for all that you've provided for us in our spiritual life and supplied for us in our physical, material existence You have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. You have provided that which we need to fulfill your plan and purpose in our lives. And, Father, let us not take anything for granted that you have provided for us, but realize that all that we are and all that we have comes from you, and that that should drive us to deeper levels of gratitude and humility, not focusing on what we have because we have done something to achieve it, but what we have because in your kindness and in your goodness you have given it to us. Fathers, we continue to think about worship and how it has worked and developed in the Old Testament. We pray that you would help us not only to understand what happened in the ancient world, but why you have revealed this to us and how it is an example to us, and that by studying and reflecting upon what happened in the Old Testament, it should expand and deepen and enrich our own understanding of worship in this dispensation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. You can follow along with some of the things there as we go forward. We are going to be looking tonight at the sanctuary for this holy nation that God called into existence, this kingdom of priests that God brought forth, uh, the uh, nation of Israel. And I have on the table down in front, which you probably can't see real well from where you are sitting, but afterwards, you know, come up and take a look. This is, at the center, we have a full Uh, display of the tabernacle, full model of the tabernacle with all the uh, pieces of equipment and everything there. And then uh, to the side, there are some larger uh, pieces of furniture that have been made. This was done by the Good Seed people, and we've had this a number of years. But you can look at that. There's a large model of the uh, bronze altar. There's a large uh, menorah. There is a large... um, I can't remember what else is done. The Ark of the Covenant that you can look at, and so you can see uh, what these the, this furniture looked like, along with the pictures that we have in in our study. I want to remind you, as I did last time, that what we're teaching here in the Old Testament is brought over in terms of principles and underlying doctrine and teaching to relate to the church-age believer. In the Old Testament, God tells Israel as a nation to be holy, for I am holy. Peter brings that over and applies it to the church. So one of the things that may come up in some people's minds is, well, why do are we studying this? We're in a different dispensation. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says that these things happen, talking about all these things surrounding the Exodus, which would include God's revelation of himself at Mount Sinai and the revelation of the uh, tabernacle and all of the ritual related to that, that these things happen to be an example for us. Now, we live in a world today, sadly, as I've pointed out, where there are pastors and there are Sunday school teachers and they're just everyday folks that when you talk talk to them about something in the Old Testament, they have this dismissive sort of attitude. And it's like, well, that's in the Old Testament, or that was part of the Mosaic law. And even though we may not be under the Mosaic law, and even though we are not going to a central sanctuary bringing... uh, animal sacrifices that we are uh, slaughtering because of our sin, we can learn a tremendous amount about this. Because what we see in the patterns of Israel is really related to talking about and and revealing uh, these, these types or these pictures for us of what is true about the individual believer's spiritual life. For example, what we have looked at in our just flyover in Exodus is the redemption event that took place at the Passover. That is a picture of God's providing life where there was death and the sacrifice of the lamb that was without spot or blemish to take the place as a substitute for the firstborn in each family. And so that is a picture of redemption And then when Israel crosses over the Red Sea, this is a picture in combination with what happens at the Red Sea of their new uh, position as a priestly nation, as a holy nation, as a nation or kingdom of priests. And this is the context in which God tells them that they are to be holy, for I am holy. Now the language, I keep belaboring this because it's just hard for us to get it into our, our thick heads. The word holy is such a holy word. You know, it just, has, it just drips with this theological holier-than-thou sort of, of uh, ambiance that it's picked up over the years that really divorces it from its original context, In the Bible, the opposite of holy isn't unrighteous. The opposite of righteous is unrighteous. The opposite of holy is the word that is usually used is profane, but that's not really a good word today because we think of profane in terms of some sort of verbal profanity. And what profane means is common. You can see an example of this in a Jewish home that they may have a separate set of dishes for Shabbat. And so those are set aside for that special purpose of, of observing their Sabbath dinner. They are not the common everyday dishes. They are holy, not because they're morally pure, there's something magical or special or spiritual about them, but they're set apart for a purpose. Uh, The same thing is true for all of the furniture in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It was holy, not because there was something special, magical about it, except that it was made for the purpose of serving and worshiping the Lord, and it had a special meaning and typological or representational uh, value. It was significant for that, and it was... Uh, unique and distinct and wasn't supposed to be used for everyday uh, everyday life functions. And so that's what holy means, is we're not supposed to live like everybody else, like the unbelievers, like the pagans. We're supposed to think and live differently. We think different and it impacts the way uh, the way we live. Now what happened as Israel came out of Of Egypt, as the Exodus took place. They went to Mount Sinai. I've used this map uh, the last few lessons. Traditional Sinai is down in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. There's debate over exactly where the biblical Sinai was located. Uh, There are others who think that it was somewhat further north in the Sinai Peninsula. I'm not going to get into that debate because there's a lot that goes on there. But the point is that while they were there, this is when they become positionally sanctified, and we looked at Exodus nineteen God appears as a as a, almost a storm cloud, dark clouds and there 's lightning and thunder and there 's an earthquake and it wasn 't a pleasant place to be. The people had to be cleansed there 's two days uh, that they have to go through a cleansing process, washing their clothes, washing themselves. It's ritual cleansing, picturing the fact that a sinner must be cleansed before they come into the presence of a righteous God. And we see this pattern that you'll see all the way through here. It is at the very core and center of the idea of worship. And it is designed to teach us uh, how incredibly majestic God is, and that He is Righteous and his standards are so beyond anything that we can imagine, and we fall so very, very short of those standards that we are absolutely unworthy, and to the point where it should bring us to despair. How in the world can we even approach anything? related to God because we are so so corrupted by sin. But that's where grace comes in. Grace comes in because it shows that on the one hand all through this that man is totally corrupt. Every one of us is spiritually dead, unworthy, impossible for us to do the least little thing that gets any kind of approbation, approbation from God but God does everything for us. And so this is the essence of the mindset, the mental attitude of worship, is recognizing that when we come together to worship God, we're worshiping this majestic, righteous God who is absolutely perfect, and that we have no right whatsoever to come into his presence. But in his grace, he has provided a means to do that, that is a free gift, and all that is involved in providing that free gift, so that we can come into uh, His presence. So this is the essence of what we are, what we're talking about. God defines how His creatures should come into His presence, and see what happens in human viewpoints. People think, "Well, I determine this on my own." What makes me feel? Religious. What makes me feel like I'm close to God? What makes me feel uh, accepted to God? That's the standard, but that's a, that's a subjective standard. The only objective standard is what God describes uh, in His Word, and what when we come face to face with the God of Exodus, who's the same God that we have in the New Testament then it should res- we should respond with fear and awe like Isaiah in Isaiah 6-9 falling on his face before God, uh, crying out, Oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I have no right to come into your presence. And then God is the one, as, as pictured by the cherub, who brings the coal, the burning coal, to uh, touch uh, Isaiah's lips and to cleanse him from sin. God does everything. He's the one who cleanses us uh, from sin. So we see that God defines how the worshiper comes into his presence. Second, that his righteousness defines the standards of his character, and to worship him we must conform to his character. But we can't do that on our own. On our own. And so every aspect of worship in the tabernacle and temple is designed to teach that and reinforce it over and over again. Now, now we may not go through all those steps and all those processes today because Jesus, all of those things uh, depicted different facets of what Jesus does on the cross. But Jesus does that one thing on the cross, and he pays for our sins through his substitutionary death on the cross, and so we just accept that and we are positionally cleansed and then when we confess sin, we're experientially cleansed. Both of those are depicted over and over in different ways through the, the ritual uh, of, the, of the tabernacle. But by studying it, we come to a greater realization of what it is that we are doing and why we are doing it. So we, we go through this because it teaches us that what God's righteousness requires, God's grace provides. And that should lead us to to great joy and thankfulness. But we dare not come into the presence of God when we come corporately to worship without recognizing. This is why on a Tuesday or Thursday night, on Sunday morning, we always start with confession because we need to make sure that that which we are doing is acceptable to God and it has to be done according to his standards. Now, with the nation of Israel, we've seen in Exodus 19:6 that he says to the to Israel that they will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So positionally when Moses sprinkles them in Exodus 24 with the blood from the sacrifice. This sets them apart positionally. That's analogous to what happens when we trust Christ as Savior. We're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. We're placed in Christ, uh, the New Testament says, and that is our new position. That is our new identity. But we still have to grow. That's our experience We have to grow, and we have to mature and and develop. So as I go through this series on worship, I'm taking time with this because there's a lot of things that I'm saying and bringing out that are different, uh, may not be categorically different, but they are refinements on things that we've been taught before. But we need to perhaps change and modify and strengthen our own personal understanding of what it is that's taking place when we come together to worship God or when we are worshiping individually. We must understand that this is not to be taken in a trivial manner. It's not something that's common. It is uncommon. It is distinct. It's holy. That we need to recognize how solemn and serious worship of God really is. Historically, evangelicals have lost this significance. Now, not all. There are still some in some churches that have more of a a liturgy, more of a ritual, but they've lost the meaning of that in other evangelical churches they've just brought it down to where basically sunday mornings a pep rally for jesus but it's not the jesus of the bible it's some jesus that they've invented in their in their head so that makes it a form of idolatry what has happened is that the pressure of the world system along with an increasing attitude of informality in our culture we've lost a sense of respect for authority, respect for other people, respect that other people have different views than we have or that other people can respect us even though our views may be different from them. All of this has been lost, and it reflects the fact that we have a a church culture that has lost its real respect for the righteousness of God and His holiness, that he is completely distinct. We've lost that sense of awe and fear that is at the heart of worship. And with that, then, we've lost this distinction between the holy and the profane. And, and you've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this from lots of different people. It's just part of evangelicalism. And I've heard it from many different people across the theological spectrum, That that When we, in many churches, we would refer to the auditorium as a sanctuary, and then somewhere along the line, people start saying, Well, that's not the sanctuary. Every believer is a sanctuary. This is where God the Holy Spirit dwells. That makes us the sanctuary. But at the root of that is a misunderstanding of what holiness and sanctuary talk about, as if it's something mystical, what, what we have here because we're all believers and God the Holy Spirit has made us a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are individually a sanctuary. Well, if we individually as believers are a sanctuary, what are we when we come together corporately? You think we lose that? In fact, we're going to see a passage, I think it's in Ephesians 3.21, that talks about the whole body together, not just individually, is growing as a temple to God, which is talking about something different than the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that when the corporate body comes together, there is something unique and distinct about that, that is very much a part of what worship is. And so as a result of the loss of uh, you know, of formality and respect that is a result of pressure from the culture, as a resp- result of losing the distinction between holy and profane, we have also slipped into uh, form- popular forms of worship that uh, are designed to make what we do on Sunday morning comfortable to the unbeliever. And that's at the very core of contemporary Christian music. It's at the core of contemporary Christian worship. It's at the core of the whole church growth movement that produced these uh, generic evangelical churches that are are exploding and that are so so very large is that they've lost all of these things, uh, which is very, very tragic. So I'm not sure how much, we can do to recapture it. You can't recapture it by creating artificial means. Now, that's one thing that's very popular today. And I've talked to people, uh, people we all know who have been in this church, moved away to other places, and they say, well, I got invited to this church or I got invited to that church. and oh say, I've always heard you talk about this, but we saw it. Turn down the lights when it's time to pray play certain kinds of music that's supposed to generate this worshipful thinking. Uh, The walls are painted dark. You have fog machines blowing smoke, you know, make of it what you will, blowing smoke at the congregation, which is what comes out of the pulpit. And all of this is supposed to create this dramatic effect that will cause people to worship. But what's forgotten is worship cannot be manipulated externally. I can't do it. You can't do it. I can't go into a soft voice, talk in a dramatic tone, and try to create something. That's fraud. Worship is going to take place between your ears, and it's going to be dependent on your volition. And the mentality you bring to you, bring with you, to church on Sunday morning or Uh, on Tuesday or, or Thursday night. And so by looking at these things, even the reading of the things I read from some different writers in terms of their devotions is to give us an example of how far we've fallen as a culture. You know, you read Lancelot Andrews, you read some of these Puritan devotions, you read some of these others, and you realize they were they were living and thinking about God at a higher plane than we do. There was something profound about how they thought about God. And that's what I read that for, is to impress you with that. Same thing with some of the hymns we read. And this is why somebody somebody's asked me, I've been asked this many times, why don't we write hymns like we used to? Because we don't have the spiritual life that we used to. We don't have people that are richly walking with the Lord that can produce that kind of response. And by looking at things like uh, the tabernacle, we can come to understand what God is teaching us. And so the tabernacle teaches us this unique place of worship that was distinct from anything else in Israel. The term, as I pointed out last time, mishkan means a dwelling place, shikan. It comes over in the Greek word, skenao, Uh, The S-K-N is your core uh, consonants for the word, and it's fulfilled. Everything in this has a fulfillment in Christ. It points to what's going on now in the church age, and that's why we can go back to it and say this isn't just something interesting historically. When I think about and meditate on what's happening there and how that's fulfilled in the New Testament, it enriches my own concept of worship. That the word, the logos, God himself, eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, was made flesh and lived among us. And that word dwelt among us is the word skenao, means to live or dwell in a tent, uh, dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the glory there isn't like the Shekinah that showed up uh, as depicted in this this uh, uh, portrait of the tabernacle, where it's the the brilliant light, the glory that we see many times displayed by Jesus in in John is his miracles, his everyday life, the way he treated people. It's not what James, Peter, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what I pointed out last time is what we see here is that inside the the, the the walls around the tabernacle, tabernacle, everything is different from what goes on in the rest of the camp. You've got three, three and a half million Jews. They're living their life. They're washing their clothes. They're cooking. They're building their campfires. They're cleaning up. They're doing all of the daily routines. But that's not what's happening in the middle of the camp. It is set apart. That's the meaning of holy. It is set apart from everything else that is going on around it and so that's the purpose of looking at these these pictures is just to point out that this is a distinct place of operation when we look at um at this uh, schematic here we see the that it is uh, 150 feet long by which is about half of a football field. That's 50 yards, about half of a football uh, field. It is uh, from uh, top to bottom, it is 75 feet. And then in the center is the real dwelling place. That is called the holy place. Uh, The Bible refers to this literally as the holy of holies, which is just a way of expressing uh, uh, the superlative it's the most holy place but we're used to the term holy of holies and the holy place and as I pointed out last time when you look at it you walk through the one entry which pictures there's only one way to God that what keeps you what, what is right there separating you from the presence of God is the altar which visually teaches that there has to be a death there has to be a blood sacrifice to come into the presence uh, to comes into the presence of God, and so this is the place of sacrifice it's described in exodus twenty seven one through eight and thirty eight one through eight and so it was constantly serviced by the priest, and it was they were to keep the fire going day and night, and this was to be a perpetual reminder that man is separated from God, but also that Uh, there is a provision made that is available 24-7. There is, um, the the altar itself was made with acacia wood, which was a really hard, dense wood. It's there, you can see acacia trees all over the Middle East today. And it it, it indicates the the perfection of Christ in his humanity because it's the wood that is least, um, uh, least, uh, susceptible to rotting and to um, uh, penetration by by bugs and termites and that sort of sort of thing, and then it's covered with bronze, and the bronze depicts the fact that it can withstand judgment. Jesus, in as the God-Man, could withstand the judgment of sin, and so the priest ministered there. And kept the fire going around the clock. And then the second thing we looked at last time was the bronze labor. There's a picture here. I have heard. I hate belaboring this, but I get questions. I get people ask me this all the time. How do you defend uh, confession of sin when First John one seven says that the blood of Christ continuously cleanses us from all sin? And there are people who are on the radio who say, "See, you don't have to confess your sin." Well, then that makes First John one nine redundant. What they don't understand is 1 John 1, 7 is what happens at the bronze altar. That is positional. What happens at the labor is experiential. The priest, when the priest is first anointed, the priest has to... Uh, is bathed from head to toe. That is a picture of complete washing and cleansing from sin. He doesn't ever get washed from head to toe ceremonially like that. Again, that's what Jesus is talking about when he talked to the disciples in the upper room in John 13. He says, but all of you have been washed. Uses a different word in in the Greek, which means a complete washing. But you still need to be cleansed. You still need to have your your hand your hands and feet washed like the priest. The hands what they did, the feet represent where they where they went. And so the labor is described in Exodus thirty, seventeen to tw- um seventeen to twenty-one. I put Exodus thirty-one through seven there. I don't know why there's that discrepancy, but there is. Uh, but it's in Exodus chapter thirty. Uh, the labor is never described exactly what it looks like. There's different artists, artistic representations. And it's designed to teach this principle of, of cleansing every time you go before, before the Lord. Uh, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, if I don't wash you, and that's a word, nipto, it means just to wash a part of your body. He said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And that word for part is a technical term really for a part part of an inheritance, a designated part of an inheritance. In other words, you're not going to have any role with me in the kingdom. And so then in verse 10, Jesus said, he who is bathed, notice the difference between washed and bathed. Washed is partial, bathed is, is getting a full bath. He who is bathed—that is, those who are already saved or completely cleansed, positionally—need only to wash his feet, but is completely, completely cleansed. Then, as you approach the holy of uh, the holy place, you see that that the boards are made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. This again is a picture of the hypostatic union, the God-Man. But when you look at the underside of the coverings, what do you see? You see cherubs. You see cherubs because remember what we studied at the beginning of this that the tabernacle is a representation of what happened at the Garden of Eden. And at the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God start, restored that relationship first with the sacrifice. That's the brazen altar. And then what did he do? He kicked them out of the garden so they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. And he set an army of cherubs to guard the garden so that man could not return. And so the sanctuary, which is reminiscent of the sanctuary of God in the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary is guarded by cherubim. And you see the cherub... On uh, embroidered on the inside of the lowest level, there are six layers of coverings, and so when you were in there, what you looked up to see was that between you and God in heaven are the cherubs. There's something blocking man's relationship with God. When we get inside the holy the holy place, you'll see that the veils have a representation of the cherubs on the veils. You can't, what's between you and the holy place where God, the holy of holies where God dwells? Cherubs on the veil. So all of this is designed to teach and remind about what happened at the Garden of Eden and why there is uh, no longer access to God. And it is this veil, the veil that is pictured uh, in the cutaway there just before the uh, holy of holies, And here we see it depicted here in the background. That is the veil that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. And that pictures the fact that now there is an opening, an access to God because the sin penalty has been paid in full. Inside the holy place, there's three articles of furniture. There's the menorah, the golden menorah. Menorah is just the Hebrew word for lampstand or lamp. Uh, That's on the left. Uh, On the right, you have the table of showbread. And then in the tabernacle and the first temple against the veil, there is the altar of incense. Now, in the second temple, according to the Mishnah and according to uh, things in the Talmud, there were actually two veils there, which helps to make sense of what... The writer of Hebrews says there when he says that the altar of incense is behind the veil and the scripture in uh, Exodus puts it in front of the veil. Well, if you have two veils and it's in between them, then both are correct. So there seems to be two, two veils in the second temple. So on the left you have the golden menorah, the golden light stand, and the passages are in Exodus 25. 31 to 40, and 37, 17 to 24. It's made out of solid gold, which tells us that it represents deity because God is the light of man. He is the source of illumination. He is the source of revelation. And so this depicts God as the one who illuminates our thinking with the light of his revelation. It is a stylized tree, so it takes us back to life. When we covered this earlier, talked about John 1, Jesus is the life, the Word is the life, the Logos is the life, and the life was the light of men. So those ideas of life and light are brought together in Jesus in John chapter 1. At the top, I don't know how well you can see this, this is a picture from the tabernacle in the wilderness, which is located... Uh, down in the southern part of the of the Negev uh, probably about 15 or 20 miles uh, north of a lot. And uh, you, this is I think a little more accurate representation because at the top you have these little menorah, these little lamps. And if you go to Israel you can buy replicas or uh, antique uh, oil lamps. And that's what what these look like. So it has these oil lamps on top, and then along the bottom you have uh, these various almond blossoms. And the reason for the almond blossoms is the almond tree is the first tree to bloom in the spring. So it represents newness of life. So it has the idea of life and light both combined uh, within this menorah. The priests would have to trim the wicks and refill the oil uh, every day, so they had to constantly keep that light on, and the light was on inside the holy of holy I mean, the holy place uh, 24/7. It is a picture of the fact that the Creator is the one who provides life. In Psalm 36:9 we read, "For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light." See how life and light are combined together in this psalm. We think of them as separate categories, but in God they are interrelated, interdependent. Life and light go together. And so it is through the light of God's Word that we see and understand light. We're illuminated to the understanding of the world around us. So we can learn a lot through empiricism and rationalism But we don't ultimately know unless we have the light of God's Word giving us that frame of reference to interpret that. Here's another stylized version. I have several books, on uh, Jewish publications on the Mishkan that have some tremendous uh, artwork and people have made uh, replicas of the furniture that are quite uh, quite sophisticated and this is a picture uh, from one of those. So we learn... In the New Testament, that this, uh, the fulfillment of this is in Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one who reveals the way to the Father. In John eight twelve, along with Isaiah forty nine six. That's John eight twelve and Isaiah forty nine six. He says, or, or at the beginning, John says he was the true light that gives light to everyone who enters into the world. That's important. That is a function of common grace, that there is a level of illumination to God's existence and to truth uh, that comes because Jesus Christ has been incarnate. Uh, In the new Jerusalem, at the end of history, the Lamb will be the light for the whole world that's in Revelation 21:23. And this should remind us that just as the menorah illuminates the temple, we as believers are to illuminate the world. We are to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation according to Philippians 2:15. So that is part of our worship, is to be the light, the reflecting the light of God uh, to the world. And then churches, when we get into Revelation, Revelation 20, and then which is the last verse in chapter 1, and then Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, refer to the seven lamp stamps that represent the seven churches that are described in Revelation 2 and 3. So the church is depicted as a lampstand. It's the role of the church through its service to God that is a a, a light to the world. As you go into the holy place, the light, the menorah is on the left. The table of showbread is on the right. This is a picture of God's provision of not only physical nourishment for Israel in the wilderness, because the 12 uh, loaves of bread represented God's provision, the manna in the wilderness, but it also represents his word. There are 12 loaves that were baked every week, and these 12 loaves are one for each of the tribes of, of Israel. The bread signifies that communion with God is the source of life. That intimate fellowship with God is the source of life. Jesus said, in quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew four four, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's, again, another argument for the fact that it's not just idea revelation in the Bible. It is verbal. Every word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the the table of showbread represents God's provision of everything that sustains us in life. The passage where it's described is Exodus 25, 23 to 30, and Exodus 37, 10 through 16. Jesus says that he is the real antitype. He's the one that this table of showbread points to. He is the provision, the fulfillment of the provision of manna that God made for the people in John 6, 32 to 59. He says, I am the bread of life. Notice how both the light represents life and the bread represents life. Jesus said he is this provision. He is the living Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, and the Word was God. And he is the written Logos. 1 Corinthians 2.16, that we have the mind of Christ. So we have the written Word and the living Word, and this is represented by the bread. And so we are to, eating the bread is a picture of faith. This is what Jesus confused people with when he says you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking metaphorically. To eat something you take it in to be part of your body to nourish your body. It's a picture of faith that we are accepting Jesus and he becomes a part of our life and nourish it as the source of nourishment uh, for us. And so what we learn from this is that God provides everything Peter put put it this way, he provides everything related to life and godliness. And that's the picture of the table of showbread. And for that, because God has given us everything, we should serve him with everything that we have. This is another stylized version of the table of showbread. Uh, this again comes from the same book I had on the on the Mishnah. Then the third piece of furniture that's in there is the altar of incense. Notice in this picture, this is from the tabernacle in the wilderness in Israel, it has the four horns of the altar and they've been painted with red to signify blood. When the sacrifice is made out on the uh, bronze altar, then the blood from the sacrifice is brought in and dabbed on the horns of the altar. That effectual prayer is based upon the fact that a sacrifice has been made opening the way to God. You can't just pray to God apart from having the application of that sacrifice. That's why we make the statement that prayer. God doesn't listen, and by listen I mean that God isn't uh, unaware, but He doesn't actively engage in answering prayers of unbelievers because they do not enter into the uh, heavenly temple in terms of their prayers because there's, they haven't trusted in Christ as Savior. The, all, the sacrifice on the bronze altar hasn't been made for them, so there's no blood applied to the altar of incense. That's that's the connection there. And so this teaches that uh, it's also a picture of the fact that Jesus is our high priest who constantly intercedes for us. But that is made possible because of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. So the altar of incense is described in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10, and Exodus 37, 25 to 29. It is a small uh, altar. It's about a foot and a half square, and it's only about two and a half feet high. But there was a special recipe for the incense that was supposed to be burned there. It is holy. And, because, and that recipe wasn't known to everybody. And at one point we know that the sons of Aaron, Abihu, and Nadab bought strange fire, the text says. No, they just brought profane incense. There was nothing bad or wrong about it. It just wasn't... What was prescribed by God, and so God disciplined them with the sin unto death, and so it was this incense that would continuously go up twenty four seven to God, which was a symbol of the continual prayers uh, for the saints and once a year the when the high priest would enter the holy of holies on the day of atonement, he would bring a censer from the a bronze altar uh, with incense in it, which would then, uh, when it was here, would fill up the room with smoke so that he, when he opens the veil and he goes into the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, he's in a fog chamber. He can't really see very clearly what is there. And so he goes in and would apply uh, the blood because the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. And here we have a, the depiction of the Ark of the Covenant that is in the, uh, in the tabernacle of the wilderness, uh, Exodus 25, 10 to 22, and Exodus 37, 1 through 9. The term Ark simply refers to a box. And so it was a wooden box made of acacia wood and covered with gold. And that represents the hypostatic union. But the lid, the covering is made of solid gold, and the cherubs on top were all of one solid piece of gold. And so this would have been worth quite a bit. So if the Babylonians captured it, it would have been melted down uh, for some purpose. So this is this is it. Now now this is how the ark is traditionally displayed where the rods for carrying it go from left to right. Some of you are pretty bright. Anybody think of a problem with that? Well, to carry the ark, the priests were to pick that up, but only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And so it is believed that in actuality you would have to turn the arc sideways so that the poles would stick out the back and the front so that when it came time what would happen is they would take the veil down, okay, the veil is still between them and the arc, and they would put the veil over the ark, and then they would have the rods coming out in front and coming out in back, and then they could pick it up and they could transport it. Otherwise, you have them having to go in in some way uh, on the sides before they could put everything down. So that's just one of the things that people uh, wonder about. Okay, here are a couple of other representations. That is a picture, I think that's a picture of the model of the Ark that we have uh, down on the table in front of the pulpit. This was another depiction of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that I think is uh, really well done, has the helmets on the cherubs indicating they're, uh, they're part of the army of the hosts of the Lord, which is the armies of the Lord. Now, in the box were three things depicted here. You have the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and these were broken. Remember in Exodus 35, 34, Moses comes down from the mountain after the law is given to him, and the people have convinced Aaron to build a, a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. And he throws down the tablets, and they break. And so then God gives him a second set. So these are the broken tablets are here to remind people that of their sin. They have uh, literally broken the law. Then you have Aaron's rod that budded. That relates to a re- uh, a rebellion that occurred among the priests that Aaron was getting all the privileges just because he was Moses' brother, an early act of nepotism, and that God really hadn't chosen him; it just just Moses showing favoritism to his family. And so most, so God said, okay, this is what you do. Everybody has to bring their staff into the tent. We'll put it inside the tent. And in the morning, the one, and remember, a staff is made from dead wood, that in the morning, the one that has sprouted forth blossoms and buds is the one that is my chosen. And so the next morning, the only... Uh, Staff that had sprouted uh, green leaves and blossoms and buds was uh, Aaron's rod. And then um, you had a bowl with manna in it. So this represented God's provision, but he provided the manna because everybody was grumbling and complaining. So these three things represented the sin of the people. And it is all covered by uh, what is called the mercy seat. But technically, the term in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, is kipareth from the word kaffar, which means the place of cleansing. It's often translated atonement, but that's an atonement at one is a term that's made up in English to describe this. And in many places, many places in the law where kaffar is used, it's translated in the Septuagint with the words for cleansing. It's the place where sin is cleansed, where God is propitiated and satisfied, uh, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter uh, Romans chapter three, in verse twenty-five. That pictures the atonement. So that brings us to then the the robes of the high priest. And you have two different pictures here. They were quite elaborate. Everything here, the dyes that are used for his robes were extremely expensive, and most people could not afford that kind of dye. So they just dressed in earthen colors in most of their garb. But all of a sudden you come to the tabernacle and you see the high priest, and he is decked out magnificently. No one else ever dressed in this kind of of, of garments and and his breastplate has these costly uh, precious stones in it, twelve of them that represent the twelve tribes of israel and they 're inlaid in this breastplate of gold, and then on his uh, on his shoulders. Uh, there's two onyx stones, and six tribes are engraved on one stone. Six tribes' tribes names are engraved in the other stone, and this rep- shows that he is representing the t- 12 tribes of Israel. His royal blue garment represents his heavenly uh, focus, his heavenly responsibility, and the uh, uh, his headdress has on it a band of around his head that has on it holiness to the Lord. He is set apart and sanctified uh, to the Lord around the... Oh, here's a picture of his, of the breastplate. Uh, of course, that's from the model there. They're not going to have a breastplate of solid gold. Uh, the, at the foot of his garment, at the base of his garments here, and then over here, you had uh, a bell... And a pomegranate, then a bell, and a pomegranate, and a bell, and a pomegranate. In in uh, the Jews believed that the pomegranate was what was on the tr- uh, was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so the pomegranate uh, represents the um, uh, represents sin, and the bell. I mean, there's speculation about what the bell is for. There's a lot of theories, but one of it was that the bell was to call attention to the priest. So when the priest is walking. Uh, through the tribes, everybody hears him. They hear his garments moving they they hear those bells uh jangling, and they know the high priest is there, so you can't be uh, he can't sneak up on anybody. Uh, they have discovered a pomegranate bell in the excavations of the uh, temple mount. I think this occurred I may be wrong here, but I think this occurred when the uh, Palestinians were building an underground mosque they're under the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they're doing this illegal excavation and taking all this dirt out and then taking it to a place and just dumping it. And then there were archaeologists who were sifting through that. I think that is where they uncovered one of these little uh, palm granite bells. They They have uncovered it. I may be mistaken as to what the occasion was. And so this is the high priest who is fulfilled in Jesus, who is our high priest. And so this is what would happen at the tabernacle. And then when worship came along, we had the sacrifices. So I want to talk a little bit about the sacrifices and just summarize them. They are described in Leviticus chapter 1 through about chapter 7. But the order in which they're described in Leviticus is not the order that you would bring them to the to the tabernacle or to the temple. And so the very first uh, sacrifice that was brought was called um, the reparation uh, offering. Sometimes it is translated as the the trespass offering. And so what happens here is that in all of these, these six sacrifices... They speak of what is necessary to bring the worshiper into complete fellowship with God. So it starts with this uh, first offering and then it ends with the offering that's the peace offering where the worshiper sat down and had a meal with God which is the picture of close communion and complete, complete fellowship. So all of these fit together but all of them are fulfilled in what happens at the cross cross with Christ. So the first sacrifice is the purification offering. I said reparation, that's the second. It's the purification offering. Sometimes it's translated in the Scripture as a sin offering, but it emphasizes the people's need for purification, for ritual cleansing, and for cleansing for sin. This is described in Leviticus chapter 4, uh, verses verse one all the way through Leviticus five thirteen, and then it's described again in Leviticus six twenty four uh, to thirty two, and this was designed to cover any ritual defilement. So that could be in, in in the case of a mother who gives birth to a child. Now she is ritually defiled. She hasn't sinned, but I think that it's because the part of the curse of sin was what. That a mother's pain would be increased in childbirth. So, because it's associated with the curse, she's ritually defiled. So she didn't have anything to confess. But just as Mary had to bring a sacrifice, uh, this was be true of any, any any mother. And there were various other things that, if you touched a dead body, you were defiled. Things like that. They're not sins, but they're they, they're associated with something that's the result of um, that's the result of sin. So they would cover any defilement or ritual impurity or sin that would be, had been committed unknowingly. Uh, the worshiper would have to put his hand on the sacrifice, confess his sin, and um, and then he would be ritually forgiven. Now, for a lot of people, especially later on during the Romans time, you, the rabbi said that, that you only had to go to the temple uh, once a year instead of the three required by the law, and the reason was is there were so many Roman soldiers in the neighborhood that if everybody left their home for their farm for two weeks, they might come back and have lost it so they they were they limited things for a practical reason. but if you're out in the fields like if you're David and you're out with the sheep and you uh, commit a sin, then you can confess it there, according to psalm thirty two five You can confess your sin, but eventually when you went to the temple, you would have to bring a sacrifice for that sin. So it's like the beginning to the end. You do the everyday confession, but those aren't uh, brought to fulfillment until the next time you go to the temple. Then you would bring a, a sacrifice, and that would complete the deal. So confession is always linked with the payment for the sin uh, the sacrificed an anim- animal, no forgiveness would be granted just on the basis of sacrifice. You had to confess your sin, and there had to be uh, the sacrifice if the defilement was for a non sin issue, then you wouldn't have any sin to confess. you would just bring the uh, bring the offering and uh, everybody asked well whether the sin is willful or premeditated then it 's either directly forgiven by God or it was taken care of on the Day of Atonement each each year. And in the sacrifice, the blood represented the death of the animal and the death as a substitute, and that represented a substitute for uh, for spiritual death. That's fulfilled for us in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's also seen in 1 John 7, 1, 7 through 9, 1 John 1 7, the blood of Christ continuously cleanses. That's the basis, the, the positional basis for con for forgiveness. And then 1 John 1 9 is stating to confess sin. Then second, there would be the reparation offering, which is sometimes called the trespass offering. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5.23 when he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there and go make a reparation. Go take care of the situation. Be re- reconciled with your brother, and then come back and finish your offering. Uh, this is described in Leviticus five fifteen through six seven, and also in Leviticus seven one through six. Leviticus five fifteen to six seven, and Leviticus seven one through six. This is the word that's used in Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is the servant, the Messiah. He has put him to grief, When you make his soul an offering for sin, that's this word for a reparation offering. And reparation was to take care of all of the things in which God's defrauded, all of the gifts, all of the service, all of the obedience, everything is taken care of by this. The idea of it being a reparation offering is more clearly seen in Numbers chapter 5, 6 through 7. Any person who sinned against another person, for example, if you stole money or embezzled money or something like that, then you would have to go and pay that back before you, and then you would bring this particular offering. So you have the uh, the initial offering, the purification offering, then you'd have the reparation offering, and then the third offering you would bring, and this is for everybody. Anytime you went to the temple, you've got to bring these three offerings, going to worship at the temple was costly it cost you something it was a reminder that salvation would cost god something the burnt offering where the whole bull or the or the lamb or or a bird in some cases was totally consumed this is described in leviticus 1 and also in leviticus chapter 6 verses 8 to 13 It was a sign of dedication to God and represented the total removal of the sin barrier and that the individual is totally dedicated uh, to God. And so everything went up in uh, fire. And so it was also a memorial. It was to say to God, remember me. Now, saying to God, remember me, doesn't mean just think about me on occasion, or recall me to mind. When the thief is on the cross next to Jesus, and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom, he's not just saying, have nice thoughts about me, recall me in your mind. He is saying, do something about it, and let me get into your kingdom. So the idea of saying, remember me, when Jesus says to remember him in the Lord's table, it is not just to think about him, but, to think about what our obligation is to walk uh, in obedience to the Lord to serve him, and so that's the idea here is they, to call upon God to remember the individual sinner, and so the idea is to call upon God to remember and to act on our behalf, and so this is to uh, is part of worship. Then the last two, which I'll cover very quickly, you have the uh, 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 the dedication offering, and the dedication offering is a representation of uh, where you would bring a handful of flour and incense is burned on the altar as a token of the worshiper's dedication to God, and that he is calling upon God to to also to remember him and to act on his behalf. And Hebrews declares that the greatest dedication offering was that of Jesus on the cross, in Hebrews ten five through seven, which quotes from Psalm forty verses six through eight. And then the last one is the peace offering. I think there are five. I said six earlier, misspoke. Five. The peace offering with communion with God secured and the payment of the sin penalty completed. Then the worshipper experiences the fullest. Uh, rapport with God. And so he is at peace with God, and now he can celebrate and have a banquet and have a meal and enjoy that fellowship with God. Now, that's all truncated. It's squeezed together for us, and we have peace with God because of what Christ did on the cross. This becomes our basis for worship. Now, I've gone through this because next time I want to come back and look at the two major Events of worship in in Israel, which is the day uh, which is Passover and the, the day of atonement, and then we're going to move from there to look at a little bit on the history we won't go through the history of the ark we've done that many times, but just jump ahead to the building of the temple, the first temple, and then we're going to look at what happens uh, with the Passover in Josiah's time uh, when he rediscovers the law. And so that sets the stage then for understanding what is the background. Everything that's said about worship in the the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, when you have all these other statements about worship, he's talking to Jews and all of this is in the background. When those Jews go into the church age and they talk about worship, this is their frame of reference. This is what they're talking about. And so now we have a greater uh, capacity for being able to understand what the New Testament is talking about and what happens on the cross to enrich our whole concept of of uh, worship. Father, thank you for this time we've had to study through this material to think about what you provided in the Old Testament for the pictures, for the way in which it gives us uh, visual uh, representations of what happened at the cross, the way it enriches our understanding of all that was needed to uh, provide salvation for us, that we might have uh, peace with you, be reconciled with you, and be able to rejoice now that we are uh, at one with you. Helps us to understand our justification as well as our sanctification. What you have given us in our position in Christ and also provisions for our daily walk. And we pray that we might take the time to reflect more profoundly about our personal worship of you. In Christ's name, amen.